turning with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 18 today. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And thank you, Dave, for such a, a wonderful set of songs as we transition away from Christmas time, just to be reminded one more time of the season where we celebrate the coming of Christ. And that last song really sums it all up with uh, coming full circle and what he did for us on the cross. It's just a wonderful time of worship. Thank you. But we are in Philippians chapter 2. God's word for us this morning, beginning in verse 12, tells us, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Pray with me as we ask God to bless this time. Thank you, Lord, that we can come before you as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, with a joy that flows from your grace through Christ, where we lift high your name, the name of Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father because of his victory over death and the power of his blood to save the soul. Lord, we ask you to bless this time and we ask that you might make us more like our Savior each day for it's by your supernatural work alone that we are transformed in our minds and our lives. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. There's something that most of us do before we do anything else in the morning. Most of you probably did this this morning. Before you have a prayer time, before you open God's word, before you even say hello to your spouse, most of us do one important thing, and that is to brew a pot of coffee. <laughs> It's absolutely essential step, right? Now, the rules for making coffee are pretty simple, right? It's, you take at the most basic level, and it can get very complicated, but as, if you boil it down to its very most simple idea, you combine ground coffee and clean water, right? And the longer that there is contact between the coffee and the water, the more that the water takes on the characteristics of the coffee. The aroma and the flavor are imparted to something that was otherwise flavorless. And when you're finished, the water has been so completely changed that it's by its contact with the coffee that it's actually called by a different name. The water that was at first only in contact with the coffee is now called by the name of coffee because its identity has been transformed. You see, when we're in contact with the Lord, we ought to take on his flavor as our hearts and our minds are supernaturally transformed to become more like the God that we serve. As Christ followers, 
We are Christians. We are called by the name of the one who has saved us, with the one who has transformed us. And as we examine our passage from Philippians chapter two today, we're going to explore the importance of becoming more like our savior. And we're going to find that because Christ's obedience brought glory to God and salvation to the guilty, we must proclaim this truth through a life of obedience. So first we're going to see that redemption calls for conviction. Redemption calls for, for conviction because God's work of redemption has ongoing effects. A follower of Christ must be moved by God's power to live for God's glory. We must be moved by God's power to live for God's glory. So let's take a look at the text here. Now, the first word that we encounter in verse 12 tells us that before we move any further, we need to take a step back. What's that first word? What says, therefore, my beloved. Therefore tells us to look at what previously happened so that we can understand what Paul, the context of what Paul is trying to say here. And several verses earlier, Paul began this second chapter of his letter to the Philippians by describing the way that who Jesus is and what he has done affects how we engage each other in the church. How who Jesus is and what he's done affects how we engage each other in the church. And he says, if you're to look back at the beginning of this chapter, in the, the preceding chapter, the end of the preceding chapter, he says that the church can be of one mind. He says that the church can count others more significant than yourselves. And we can do this because of the way that Jesus Christ came to redeem the world. Fully God and fully man, having lived a perfect life of obedience and submitting himself even unto death as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And because Christ has done this, it says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. With this in mind, Paul addresses the Philippians. And he says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what's clear in this passage is that Paul is commissioning the Philippians here. He's commissioning them to continue in obedience that persists even when he is not present. What demands our focus is fleshing out what this obedience consists of. What does it actually look like to be obedient in the way that Paul is calling these people to be obedient? And what brings it about in the life of the Philippians? And what brings it about in the life of the church today? As one who had been the instrument that God had used at Philippi in starting the church actually at Philippi, Paul is speaking to them from a distance. Now, he's not able to personally observe their actions. And so he's calling them to confirm their steadfast love to God by being consistently obedient, especially since he can't be there to hold them personally accountable. But more than a limitation of Paul's physical presence here, we see that this is Paul calling them to understand that their obedience is not primarily directed to him, it's actually to be aimed at Christ. And what does this obedience look like? Well, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What do those words conjure up in your mind? You see, those words have been very troubling for many people throughout the ages. What does it mean to work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling. And how can these be the words that are coming from the lips of Paul when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, for, grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how do we make sense of what Paul is telling us here in Philippians? Well, let's be clear. Having just given the most, one of the most beautiful, and you can go back and read it uh, in your own time, and I invite you to, it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the condescending grace of God in all of scripture. And it, it shows, it focuses upon that grace being shown through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Having just elaborated on that in the most grandiose and wonderful way, Paul is not nullifying the death of Christ by saying that you can somehow earn your own salvation. We can be sure of that. What Paul is doing is he's making the very common biblical link between one's status as a born-again believer, follower of Christ, and the process of sanctification that's becoming more like Christ. You see, there's a connection between one's status as a born-again believer and one's life. And this is backed up by other scripture. 1 John, for instance, tells us something very similar in chapter 2. It says in verse 2 of that chapter, he, that's Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. You see, Paul is echoing this, this biblical idea here. The fact is that Christ's sacrifice really does justify all who place saving faith in him. It's not opposed, but this idea is not opposed to the idea of obedience. That just because the grace of God extends does not mean that obedience has no part in the life of a Christian. Salvation has in mind here, in this passage, a broader process that culminates in perfect Christ-likeness or sanctification. So what Paul is most directly dealing with in verse 12 is the question of what motivates obedience. And that's the second part of this question here. He says fear and trembling. Fear and trembling are the principles Emotions that Paul directly affirms in shaping the life of faith. But what Paul has in mind here is not simply an idea of fear and dread, of terror, but a deeply seated sense of respect and honor to God because of who he is and what he's done. And this is where verse 13 goes on to tell us, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, Paul is telling the Philippians here that yes, you are to engage in the endeavor of becoming more like Christ each day. But as you work out your own salvation, you are to realize that God is at work in both your heart and your deeds. God is at work in your hearts and your deeds. So how can we better make sense of this idea? Because it can be very, very confusing. So well, how can God hold us accountable for our actions and call us to obedience? At the same time, he has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. Well, and so the, the question becomes, how can we be instructed to work hard? Because Paul is not simply saying, oh, simply by osmosis, you become a better Christian. He's saying you've got to work at becoming a better Christian and actually following Christ to work hard and pursuing Christ's likeness while also being told that not only are your actions not in godliness a reflection of your own power, they're actually a reflection of God's grace and your very will itself is a testimony to God's goodness. 
Well, imagine you were to walk into a gym and you were to begin to exercise, to begin to work out your muscles by lifting weights. And do you know that no matter how scrawny you are, no matter how weak you are, no matter how uh, unable you are to do all the different exercises, you bring something when you walk into the gym. And that's muscles. No matter how small they are, no matter if you can only lift five pounds with both hands, you bring muscles to the page here. No one undertakes working out without having something to start with. And when Paul calls the church to work out their salvation, he's not asking them to start from scratch. He's telling them to develop their faith as they build upon the foundation that is their salvation in Jesus Christ. And so too are we to work out our salvation. It doesn't mean that we start from scratch with our own deeds. It means that we build upon a life that has been transformed through the miraculous work of Christ. So when we consider what Paul is telling the Philippians in verse 12, we can easily be intimidated, though, by this, work, this call to work out our own salvation, right? It seems intimidating. It's so serious that Paul indicates that it's to be undertaken with fear and trembling. So maybe rightly so, it's to be a little bit intimidating. But it's in that moment of being intimidated, just wondering how, how in the world we can even attempt to become more like Christ, that we can praise God. Because he has, in his work of salvation, not just atoned for us on the cross, but he continually ministers to us even after the fact. That it's not merely about just justification upon the cross. It's important. It's absolutely essential to understand that when Christ died upon, his upon the cross, he actually shed his blood to pay for sin, yes. But also we draw from this the fact that Christ still is our advocate before the Father. That, you know, when we look upon the cross, in any crosses that we have upon our church building or anyone that you'll see in the offices or anything like that, you'll notice something. There's no Jesus upon, on the cross. You know, some, some, some churches you walk into and um, they'll, they still have Jesus on the cross. And did you know there's a reason why we don't have Jesus on the cross? Because he's not there, right? He's not there. He's actually risen from the grave. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, where he's an advocate for those who believe in him. It says that he prays for those who are his children. And that he actually prays for us and intercedes for us before the Father. That he sent his Holy Spirit for us. So it's not without reason that we, don't have, that we have an empty cross. Because there's also an empty tomb. So even more profound in our minds uh, to comprehend the fact that even our desires follow Christ are an outpouring of God's grace. Paul speaks to another community. He tells the Ephesians something absolutely powerful. That, he actually, that God is at work not only in the big picture of uh, actually doing the miraculous work, but he's actually at work within our hearts to pursue him. And he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, and it should be on your screen for you now, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So when you walk through your dark time and you're asking God, how can I weather this moment? I've lost my spouse. 
I've lost my, my mother or my father. My child that I desire so deeply to follow Christ has rebelled against me. He's rebelled against God and is running away from him. How can I deal with this dark moment? I don't feel as though my faith is good enough. How can you watch? How can you, how can you face this foe in your own strength? And the miraculous thing here is that God is telling us that we do not have to rely upon our own unction, our own strength within ourselves to overcome our dark, darkest times, that we rest not in our own power, but in God's power within us, that he actually is the one who sends our faith to us so that we can weather these moments. That's why we don't have to fear these things. And it's an encouragement to show us that as we pursue a life of faithfulness, that we serve a God he doesn't ask the impossible. He doesn't expect the preposterous, but he actually works within us to will and work for his good pleasure. And that's how we can re remain in faith even during these darkest times. So having established this idea that our will and our deeds unto obedience are divinely administered, Paul speaks about God's purpose in Christian obedience. And by this we see that redemption, not only does redemption call us to conviction, but redemption commands a contrast. Redemption commands a contrast. Because we are the covenant children of God, we are to live a life, we're to live in a way that shows a family resemblance. See, activity reflects identity. Activity reflects identity. And this could be measured by the way in which our lives are in contrast to those who do not know Christ. Having charged the Philippians with the responsibility of remaining faithful and establishing the supernatural means by which God works within his people to accomplish sanctification, Paul shifts his focus slightly and he provides a warning that's paired with a commissioning. It's an interesting combination. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud of that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, what's immediately compelling about verses 14 and 15, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is this classic kind of imagery that he's using of the unfaithfulness of Israel. In fact, he's actually lifting this pretty much, uh, we, we can be pretty sure that he's directly referencing a passage in De Deuteronomy 32. Um, and in this passage, it's a song of Moses, and he directly, Moses also directly deals with this idea of a crooked and twisted generation. Let's read in verse 5 of chapter 32 in De Deuteronomy. It says, they have dealt corruptly with him. That's the people of God had dealt corruptly with the Lord. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, it's very serious for Paul to make this kind of um, connection here between how God's people in the church of Philippi are, are to live and how the unfaithful among Israel rebelled against their God. It's a very serious kind of comparison. Now, it's not so strong 
as to say that somehow the Philippians are destined to mess up in the same way that Israel did. It's not that strong. But it's a striking comparison. And it leads us to see the urgency for authentic, intentional obedience here. Intentional obedience that stems not from an adherence to the letter of the law, but actually comes from the heart. The grumbling here that we're talking that that Paul mentions is an interesting note. The grumbling also echoes what Israel did over and over again. We see that if you if you look in the the first five books of Scripture, you'll see over and over and over and over again. Israel grumbles against God. It was Moses' bane as a leader of the people of Israel when it was his time as a leader. It just always haunted him because no matter what he did, no matter how faithful he was to God, the people of Israel would always grumble. And it's interesting that they're grumbling. And and by extension, the grumbling that Paul may be warning against here is not a grumbling amongst each other. It's actually a grumbling against God. And I think that we have a tendency, not so much, we, we do have a tendency to grumble among each other, just as a natural fallen human being. But we, we often have this tendency to, when we are encounter hardships, to grumble against the Lord. It's important to recognize that Paul's instruction here comes in form of commissioning the church to do. So in light of this, Paul has commissioned the church to do. Actions are to reflect identity. A person who is a child of God ought to live with distinction from those in the world who are believers in name only. The children of God language here indicates there's to be a relationship between the church and God, and it's strikingly familial. Have you ever thought about that? One great preacher observed, for God's adoption of us, ought to be a motive to a blameless life that we may in some degree resemble our father. Now, when someone is adopted as a child, sometimes they resemble their adoptive parents, right? And some of you may be adopted in this room today. And some of you might resemble your adoptive parents. But it's not the normal thing. And what's amazing here is that God's word calls us to resemble our adoptive father. And so it's, it's not like a normal adoption. But we are called by God's word to actually resemble the God who has adopted us. And the final part of this commissioning emphasizes the personal connection that Paul has to these Philippians. Verse 16 states that he wants the church to be holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, what's Paul talking about here? It's not focused on his vanity. Let's get that out of the way. It's not focused on vanity. The Apostle Paul does not have a fragile ego. He's not somehow uh, going to be uh, hurt or bruised uh, in some way if the church of Philippi was to fail in terms of his own personal ego. It's not about that. Paul is actually expressing his desire that they hold tightly to the word of God so that they live in a way that pursues obedience in light of Christ so that they can be a contrast with the world in the wickedness that surrounds them as light and darkness. As one who poured himself into the ministry of this church, he he started this church from its very first members when he visited the area. As one who has poured himself into this church, he's perhaps 
beginning to understand at this point that the life that he's lived for Christ would in a time not too far off end with him dying for Christ. And he expresses his longing to have the faith of the Philippians vindicated in eternity. You see, for Paul, it's not about saving face. It's about saving souls. It's because he desires to see his faith, their faith persist and be true, proven true that he commends them to live a life in such a way as to be a contrast to the world in which they live. Now, how many of us have a TV of some sort in our house? I'd say most of us, right? Um, it might be small, it might be big, it might be new or old, but some of us have, most of us have some sort of TV. I remember when I was a kid, we had this, a CRT TV and it was, you know, weighed 250 pounds and it was huge and massive, but I thought it was great when I was a kid. And then, uh, you know, time for technology upgrades and we got a thinner and lighter and nicer HD LCD TV. And I thought that, that was just so clear. It was amazing. It's fantastic. But you know, as you might expect, Technology keeps on getting better and better. And now they have something called an OLED TV. And maybe you have one of these. Maybe you've seen one in the store. But I remember the first time I saw one of these TVs. And I just had to stop and observe because of how it presented everything so vividly, so clearly, so with so much impact to it. And if you've ever seen one in store or you have one, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And if, you're, if you haven't seen one, next time you, you go into the store, take a look for one. But if you see that, and you see all this impact that it brings, it turns out that there's actually one reason why it's so amazing. Because it does one thing absolutely perfect, and that's contrast. It actually has something called infinite contrast. It's perfect in every way. You see, there's a perfect distinction between light and dark. Light and dark can be right next to each other, and they never blend together. And that is what makes the picture so clear. And Paul is calling the church to live a life that exhibits a startling contrast between the light and the dark that surrounds us in the world. It's for our purity, yes, but it's also to show the world a vivid image of what it is to be a child of God that can only be seen, it can only be seen when there is contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian. That is what brings this vivid picture into focus. If we want to live our lives to be compelling in faithfulness to the Lord, that those who are of the world stop and take note, we need to have powerful contrast with the world around us. And so the question I ask is, how, if you were to be honest with yourself, how much does your life contrast with the world around you? Is it, is it fuzzy? Is it lacking in distinction? And if you were to hold your life up to your neighbor who does not know the Lord, to your coworker who do not, does not know the Lord, to your brother or your, your relatives who do not know the Lord, would there be a difference? Because the Bible says, yes, there should be. There must be. Because we're called to have a life that is different. And I don't just mean being here this morning, because that's the easy part in a lot of ways. How our contrast shows is in the way that we interact day to day. Inter interact in, in the times that are not the easy times, but the most difficult times. How we react when we're disappointed. How we react when we're angered. It shows the world around us, the contrast that exists because of what 
is within us. And that's the Holy Spirit. So reflecting on this purpose-filled vision for Christian obedience, we can actually explore the joy that Paul talks about here. And it's understood in the context of faith. So not only does redemption call for conviction and redemption command contrast, but redemption actually imparts an inner joy. Redemption imparts an inner joy. Having received a hope that is eternal, our hearts should be filled with a joy that's eternal. Now the seriousness and the intensity of Paul's instruction to the Philippians gave, gives way here to a candid, invulnerable moment for Paul as he marries joy with humility. And it's, it's important for us to notice the combination of those two, joy and humility. It says in verse 17, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about this, this drink offering. Well, Paul's invoking this Old Testament language, this language of temple sacrifice. Specifically, he describes the way that a sacrificial offering that involved the shedding of blood would be followed by a drink offering that consisted of wine being poured on or um, in front of the animal which was being burnt. And as the wine was poured out onto this, this burning sacrifice, this burning offering, it would be vaporized. And this is symbol of worship rising to God as the steam rose off the sacrificial fire. So being poured over the sacrifice of faith presented in the life of Philippians, Paul says he counts it joy to be even the steam from the wine, utterly consumed, utterly spent, but rising as a, street, as a sweet fragrance in the nostrils of God. You know, each week it seems like there's a new scandal that breaks out in Hollywood or in politics where we see a new figure that's accused of misconduct, right? You can, you can hardly turn on the news these days without seeing a, a new person come to light or be accused. And many of these people who are wrapped up in these scandals are now borderline elderly, right? They um, are now answering for decades, sometimes decades of evil actions. And as each person who is once respected is exposed and their image of success fails, you can see the way that selfishness leads to a wasted life of sorrow. And this is a photo negative of the Apostle Paul. He was not living for himself. He lived as one who was not his own. He was content to be poured out for God's glory. And through his meaningful life filled with eternal purpose, Paul is able to live with a joyful heart. What a contrast to the world in which we live. Even as he was involved in, counting, in, count, in starting countless churches. He wrote the most books in the New Testament, or actually of any single author in the Bible. Paul did not fall into the error of thinking that everything centered around him. In fact, he delighted to be consumed for God's glory. In Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
When you define yourself as a worshiper of God, when you consider that is to be core of who you are, living your life as a sacrifice for God is something that you too can count as joy. In Philippians 2 verse 18 tells us, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The world's promise of meaning and selfish living is a lie. The world's promise of of meaning and fulfillment in selfish living is a lie. You know, we, we live in a world where uh, there's a, a three-letter phrase that's going around, and it's, it's popular probably in people who are younger than me, but it's three letters, or three words, rather, and it characterizes a, a philosophy on life, and it's, it's you do you. You do you, right? Now, that's fine if you're painting your walls, because what does it mean? Well, you, you be true to yourself, and that is how you find fulfillment. And they can be fulfilled in their way because they're true to themselves. We live in a city where there is a multi-billion dollar corporation that tells you to always let your conscience be your guide. Where you're told that you're, if you follow your heart, that your dreams will come true. And that might be true if your heart is in line with Christ. But the word of God tells us that selfish living, following after what your own desires are, is not going to bring fulfillment and it will lead you nowhere but brokenness. So you do you will only lead you to brokenness. It will never lead you to fulfillment. God has called us to live for his sake. How can, if you look at Paul and you wonder how in the world can he be fulfilled? He was beaten. He was broken. He was homeless at times. He was without friends. He ended up as we, a tradition carries down, being killed for his faith. He writes letters where he tells people, tells his friends, look, everyone's abandoned me. Please send somebody. Please send, my, some, please send me my coat. Asking for his most basic needs. How can this man count it as joy to suffer for Christ? And our answer is that he knows that he is created for a purpose, which is to worship the Lord. And he's content not to have possessions, not to have status, not to have power, not to have a perfect uh, wife. He, he was not married. He didn't seek it in relationships. He didn't seek it in material possessions. He didn't even seek it in the preservation of his own life. He sought his fulfillment to be poured out for Christ. And that should shape radically how we live our lives for the Lord. That it's not merely to have God as a means to all of those fulfilling things in our life, but it's to be able to forsake those things. It's not to say everyone is called to be homeless for God. It's not to say that everyone should not have a relationship or a spouse or anything like that. No, it means that all of those things come secondary. And that if all of those things were stripped away, you could say, it is well with my soul. I serve a good and righteous God and I will serve him to the bitter end because he is faithful and he is good, and that is true joy, even in the midst of the darkest valleys which we may encounter. And what's encouraging is to look at not only the instruction that Paul gives the Philippians here, but to look to his example as a servant of God. He's instructing the Philippians to live a life that's saturated with obedience, and it flows from God's work within. Paul is an example in his life. 
but shines into the darkness of a world obsessed with self-pleasure, so obsessed with vanity, and all of these things in this darkness in this world. And he encourages us to be contrast, to be at contrast in the obedience that flows from a life that has been changed by faith through Christ, faith in Christ. It's a repentance from sin and a turning to faith in Christ. And if you have not done that, then all of this does not make sense. The call, the idea that redemption calls you to conviction, to live with conviction, is a strange idea if you do not know Christ. The idea that redemption commands a contrast with the world is at odds with how we perceive ourselves if we do not know Christ. And the idea that redemption can impart inner joy is something that's utterly foreign to us if we do not know Christ. So the call today is that if you desire to seek a life of fulfillment that is not in selfishness, that is not in the things of this world, that you seek inner joy, that you would turn to Christ. That redemption would lead you to conviction into a life of contrast with this world that can only happen as a result of God coming and living within you in the Holy Spirit. So it's an obedience that bears fruit within the heart. It's a testimony of the words of Christ. He tells us, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray.